0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: We're underway here at the Glenn Show. Uh, You've tuned in to the Glenn Show, Glenn Lowry here, Brown University, and the Manhattan Institute, where I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow. The Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show, and every other week, my guest is John McWhorter, uh, John is at Columbia University and he writes for the New York Times. So welcome, John. Welcome back. Thank you, Glenn. Good to be here. Congratulations, John, on having appeared, I guess it was Friday before last, uh, as a guest on Bill Maher's uh, program, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, HBO. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. I thought you hit it out of the park, John. Thank you. I, um, I had fun up there. That's a, that's a fun show. It's right. It's, it's, you know, it's not academic, but then on the other hand, you are expected to talk about real things, and you've got the, um, the pressure of the fact that it's TV, and it's not technically live, but you, it all kind of keeps going, and you've got a live audience there, as you know, and it's kind of over before it begins. And so you've got, to, you've got to get your word in and realize that you only have so much time. You can't go on for a long time, but you don't want to say so little that you haven't made your point. I enjoy yeah. that one. So, yeah, it was um, it was a good time. So I wonder, do you rehearse?
1: Do you prepare? I mean, so you had certain uh, I can't remember them now, but they were so noteworthy at the time. Well, turns a phrase, you know, a little like somebody says stupid as a box of hair. That was that was one of yours. <laughs> <laughs> a box of hair was the metaphor. <laughs> it was Trump. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. OK. Yeah, in which case, of course, it's uh, I, um, self-evident. But still, it's a pretty good way of putting it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. No, that was that was spontaneous. But I, of course, you go up there with two or three kind of lines that you're prepared to use because they do tell you what the topics are going to be. But in my experience, when you're talking, most of it is going to be spontaneous. You know, I don't use often the things that I was thinking I was going to use. But yeah, I think about it a little because you've got to get your word across and concisely. And you can just watch some people on TV or on podcasts who don't quite understand that you can't go on and on and on that you have to have the economy. So yeah, a, a little, but some of it to me is just like being in front of the classroom. I just go into that same mode where you just, you, you, you say, you talk the way you normally talk. And next thing you know, You've said something like the box of hair, but yeah, I liked that line too. <laughs> who, who
1: were you on with? You were on the panel with uh, the, where he interviews two guests. Mm-hmm. Who was your
0: opposite number? It was Josh Tarangiel, who I really liked working with, partly because we knew about different things. And frankly, before the show, we kind of talked about it. I said, you're going to know more about th- this business of banks. Etc. and maybe I know a little bit more about language. We informally said we were going to kind of step back when those topics came up. And I thought he was really, really good at what he did. And what I couldn't believe, I mean, I'm making it sound like I've been on the show 25 times, but he was new. He hadn't been on it before. You you would think he was just, you know, a regular. So, no, that was, um, it was good. But I've been been struck by um, how I said my thing about equity, I said that. Um, if you okay, compare- I've seen you oh. on with uh, Josh, but I've also sorry,
1: sorry to interrupt, John.
0: That's okay.
1: I was going to comment that I've seen you opposite Michael Eric Dyson. I've uh, I've seen you opposite Andrew Yang. This is at the Bill Maher show? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now this Josh uh, fella.
0: It looks like you're starting to be a regular one of his go to people. Mm-hmm. I think I am. I think they 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 like the cut of my jib i've actually unlike you i've never been on it with dyson it's interesting he and i are going to do a thing at syracuse next week oh you were not on with him i'm sorry i feel like i was but you were um i was gonna be but you were but i have been on it i think what i just did was my fourth time these days i was on mar in um oh five and i failed it's the one time i've ever out and out failed on tv it wasn't embarrassing but I just didn't have that much to say because they put me on with, one, some high-ranking official from Canada who is not famous, but she really had a way with a line. She'd been on the show before. She was really smart. I forget her name. And George Carlin. And he's a professional comedian, and he was making George jokes. George Carlin? It's Carlin. <laughs> and he's making jokes about the Iraq War. And he's the, only, he's the only person on earth who could have made jokes about the Iraq War and gotten away with it. And I'm not a comedian, and so I'm sitting here between this one kind of TV professional, and then two, this god comic, and it just kind of threw <laughs> me. I didn't, I didn't have any way to, I didn't know what to say. I didn't fit, yeah. and so it wasn't terrible, but I was not invited back until recently because I just did not make much of a show for myself. The one time I've kind of choked on air, as in just not, I just wasn't fluent or interesting. And so I'm honored that they've started to have me back because, you know, I'm older, I've done more media, I know more, you know, nothing would spook me now, not even George Carlin. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I get to do it. I get to do it once or twice a year. I'm I'm happy with that.
1: Did you notice that our UATX event uh, in a couple of weeks is sold
0: out? No. No, tell them what that is and remind Remind me. Let me
1: see if I've got it. It's uh, Ilana Redstone. Oh, this is the Ilana. Event. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it uh, has a University of Austin, Austin, Texas uh, connection. Uh, but, but And I should know more than I actually do. I'd have to go and look up the, the details and in my email God God, to tell problem. you what the chapter yes, and verse exactly. is. I got so many events, man. I mean, they, I'm I'm overwhelmed, actually, with stuff. Uh, I'll ask uh, people to put in the uh, notes for this post the uh, information about the event on April 4th in New York City where John and I are going to uh, appear together. Uh, and I don't and, have to travel. Uh, we were just talking about I'd, you don't have to travel and I have to do Amtrak down from Providence, which is not that bad. No, no. Although... Traveling is becoming more and more onerous to me, John, I must say, in my old age. You mean because of
0: the back, your back problem? That must be awful.
1: Yeah, the back problems and, you know, getting around, pain, you know, standing on my feet. I get tired and whatnot. Anyway, enough about me. We were talking about the UATX event. We'll uh, give some reference to it. And then we were talking about just being busy. At least I was talking about being busy and traveling around. I have to go out to Minnesota to a small college where I'm giving a talk, you know, on the lecture circuit.
0: Uh, But And I'm, you know, it'll be fine. The problem with that is that with those small town things, you probably have a two-leg flight. And then once you get out, I've, I've, I've gotten wary about the small towns because God bless small towns. But once you get out of the plane, is the small town 50 minutes away, an hour and 10 minutes away? And if it is, I've started to, to usually say no because that's three legs. And then you have to do it in reverse. Is this one of those things? Yeah, it's one of those things, John, where I
1: factored in, uh, in the negotiation or consideration of all of these different factors that you have just enumerated, which are indeed exactly as you enumerated them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm being compensated for it, so.
0: Compensation is nice, but there's also quality of life. I've done a lot of flying this semester, and you deal with one of those hub airports where you've got some long way and... So one plane is not going to be on time. You can be sure that if you've got four things, one of them isn't going to work. Stop it. You're jinxing me. I'm sorry. But
1: (laughs) but no, you're you're right. I'll be lucky if all these planes take off and land on time. I'll be lucky because there are four Mm -hmm. planes involved. You're right.
0: So and God help me if a storm should come in. And then there's the weather. And if you live in New York, you're dealing with basically just what this extremely crowded city is like. Boston can be kind of the same, but New York is pretty nasty in that way. Just so many people. And, you know, that that exhausts me after a while, especially Kennedy. LaGuardia is a 20-minute walk from my house. But Kennedy is a trip. There's no way to get to Kennedy without sitting in traffic. There's no way to get from Kennedy without sitting in traffic. It's just part of the experience. Yeah, as you can see, I'm right off of this. I just spent some time in Antwerp, lovely city, but giving some talks about linguistics. But, yeah, you have to get to Antwerp. So, Antwerp, yeah. that's uh, the Netherlands? It, it's a lot. Um, That's cool. what cool. one would think. It's Belgium, actually. But it was nice. But, you know, oh, you get Belgium. into yeah. Brussels Airport. Lovely place, but, you know, then you have a half-hour train to Antwerp. Nice train, too, but still. You have to work. So, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this when stuff, we're not this complaining. A lot.
1: But I wanted to ask you something about the Bill Maher thing because you got asked a question. What's the difference between equality and equity? And it gave you the occasion to hold forth. Uh, I thought very powerfully. You
0: want to reprise that? Well, what I was trying to get across is that the way we use the term equity these days is it's a fig leaf term because what people mean by it is. We want to make sure that people in this organization, in this body, reflect the demographic proportions of this, that, or the other thing. The idea is that there should not be an underrepresentation, for example, of especially black people and Latino people. And to the extent that there is, we're going to force the issue. When you say you're for equity, you don't mean that you're just for equality. What you mean is that draconian measures are going to be taken, always, always always involving relaxation of standards, although you may think of it as reconceiving them, but it's always relaxation of standards, with the idea being that true equality must be forced. If there isn't this equality, it must be because of racism, for example, and that therefore special methods are necessary to ensure this equality. Those methods are about equity. And the funny thing is that you really, you really learn about why there is ideological conflict. There are people out there who genuinely think that equity is simply a commitment to you know, equality, that that's all it is, that it's probably this slightly official term for being committed to equality. And they genuinely don't understand or they genuinely don't see why anybody would have a problem with changing standards, having quotas, and doing all sorts of things in the name of equality and calling it equity. And so I was just saying that you know and this is something that I had thought of before I got up on the set. I hadn't thought very hard about it, but I thought equity is like equality but with something banged out of it. You you get you get rid of the a and the l and then you've got this word equity. And there's a certain arrogance or there's a certain no-nothingness in the way you bang out those words and pretend that equity means the same thing. And the reason is that these people think and this is my my hobby horse, these people think that what they're doing is okay because it's battling white power. Anything that battles white power is inherently okay, short maybe of physical violence. And so you're allowed to completely change standards and do affirmative action in the the old token black style. I think on the show I mentioned, what happened to the conception of token black? Tokenism is okay under equity because it creates a tableau that reflects what they call equality. It's a very false as I said on the show wormy and arrogant Worried. social <laughs> policy. Yeah, it's 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 wormy. I don't know what Okay, where I well, got let me that just word, say yeah. let
1: me say for the record I think that analysis is brilliant. Uh, I I couldn't have said it better myself. I, Thank I, you. I think you touched on so many interesting points. Uh of course, I'm inclined to want to say things like it's a bluff. Everybody can see how phony it is uh there'll be backlash uh these people who think they're getting equality are really getting patronized they're they're getting tolerated they're being treated like they're little spoiled brats who you don't want to provoke too much because they know that uh, people know you'll throw a tantrum and so they placate you on social media by mollifying right. you by pretending but they're pretending uh because mediocrity is actually what it is, and you know mastery over the command of a discipline or a talent or a job or whatever it is, is also what it is. And there really is no substitute at the end of the day for the objective demonstration of competency, throwing out the tests, you know, skewering the, the people who want to make judgments is all a, a kind of power play and, and you're being tolerated and you'll only be tolerated to a certain extent. So, you know, it's It's going to blow back on you. uh and, You're in a position of weakness. It's faux power. It's a kind of false uh, power uh, that is built on a very shaky foundation, something like that.
0: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm hearing from various people who are, you know, appalled at what I said, who think that it was irresponsible of a college professor, irresponsible of a public intellectual, as it were, to present such an oversimplified conception of what Equity is in uh, a highly viewed venue, and you can really see the reason why. I always tell you I don't think it's a bluff, is because these people writing me are not bluffing. They genuinely think that this conception of how equality works—that we call equity—is the way it's supposed to be, and that nobody could possibly question it. One person even wrote me, and was you know they were keeping keeping it cool, but they said, "John, you went to a Quaker school," and this was somebody else who was involved with that realm of things. You know, you should understand these things as if it's that self-evident. You know that it's a certain kind of Christianity, or it's a certain kind of, especially with the Quakers, it's a you know a kind of leftist commitment. This is somebody who thinks that if you are anywhere left of center, you could not have any problem with this conception of equity. And you know, it's one of those things. I get I get so damn tired of this particular thing that gets thrown at you. You're oversimplifying, they say. But the same people. Who tell you that you're oversimplifying and speaking in clear language and having a little bit of emotion, just a little, will talk exactly that way, write exactly that way about racism. The people who tell you you're oversimplifying will happily write about 2023 as if we're in about 1955 and nobody will yeah. say anything. And nobody in their world will say anything. No editor will have anything to say to them. It's disgusting. You know, why, why are those people so upset when somebody says something they don't agree with in a way that's understandable? I'd think that they could see past it, but they can't. They oversimplify all the time, and not just the extreme ones. Everybody does it. You know, I get tired of being accused of that particular thing.
1: Okay. How dare that's you that's be understandable? I... Go ahead. Um. Okay. Uh, but i want to try to make the case for equity <laughs> <clears throat> you are uh, in the this. spirit of you know the devil's advocate and and you know the spirit of uh, telling both sides of the story here and i think i think the case has two major prongs one of them has to do with standards standards are relative whose standards and the other has to do with opportunity it's not a level playing field so when you enforce, quote, equality, close quote, uh, as your standard, and you don't recognize that uh, both the rules of the game are up for grabs. I mean, the rules of the game have evolved. They reflect power relations, dynamics, and so forth, and they reflect history. Uh, And also that the starting point for people, people don't start at the same starting point, and they, they, they want somehow to Make that a part of the conversation, and when you say equality, it's like you're taking some givens and you're taking them off the table uh, for for debate, uh, and you're you you've got your rigid assessment, you know, you've got your SAT, you've, you know, you've got your you know your standards, um, and you, you're hiding, but you know, you're kind of hiding behind a, a procedural fig leaf, and and you're not engaging the substantive questions of social morality and uh and whatnot. So equity contextualizes the assessment of talent and the uh uh social obligations in the face of history and uh ask us to engage the full problem and and, and not just the the yardstick measuring, you know, how fast are they running the race. It's not just how fast they're running in the race, it's everything that went into it, from the way the track is laid out to who had a chance to train and develop and so forth like that. And this little cartoon of the kids standing at a fence where one kid can't see over until you put her on a higher box is a very nice representation of this of this idea. Uh but I think the real issue is where's the boundary? Are you are you going to include everything or are you just going to like start from Uh, the status quo ante, and uh, and then make your judgments without taking on board how it is that we got where we are. Something like that, John.
0: Yeah, sure. But the problem is, and here's some oversimplification, all of that is well-intended thinking designed to grapple with the fact that brown people in the United States often aren't as good at taking standardized tests as other people. Really, most of this comes (laughs) down to that. And whether or not you can be granted something on the basis of having filled in some bubbles and answered some short questions, if you're not good at that, the issue is we've got to come up with a way of getting around that instead of giving people practice in the tests. And that's where I become implacable. I just, I cannot budge and say that that's okay. All of these pretty words about opportunity, et cetera, are fine, but not when what you're really doing is trying to exempt black and Latino kids from standardized tests because you're calling us dumb. And I can see how a a, a well – a good-thinking white person might figure – we, we don't have long enough to fix why it is that they aren't good enough at the test. Or deep down, they might be thinking that we're just not smart enough to take the test. They figure we must make a pretty picture to show that we're not racist, and that's probably the right thing to do. And then you start really thinking about how much do our previously maintained standards matter, et cetera. But as I used to say more than I say now, how would you like that standard applied to your own kids? How would you like your children evaluate it according to this idea that they have to be you know put up on a box because the thing is the cute cartoon with the box is nice you were born short so we're going to put you on a taller box it's not your fault you were born short do people not fucking realize that the analogy here if we're talking about tests is you were born dumb and so we're going to let you in anyway do people not understand that i am truly and folks i am not performing this truly does insult me What frustrates me even more is that so many black people don't understand the insult. It's a terrible, terrible thing. The only way I can justify it is to imagine that people just get impatient. They don't want to do the hard work. They want to just make things look better, faster, because we all have bigger fish to fry or something. But no, it won't. It won't do at all. It won't do. And I actually, I I want to say quickly, I tweeted myself on Mar last week, which I do not usually do. I'm not into looking Uh, at myself on shows and clipping pieces. But because of all this blowback I'm getting, I just decided, no, folks, I do not think it was oversimplified. And I'm going to put this here on Twitter where people can see it. Because I think what I said is something lots of well-intentioned, intelligent people are thinking. But you're just not supposed to say it. And my job certainly is to say it on national television, as a black man in accessible language. I'm glad I did it, and I'm going to do it again. Well, you're doing it right now, and I want
1: to, I want to just drill down exactly. on the point. <laughs> I want to drill down on the point. Okay, so here's <laughs> McWhorter. McWhorter says the issue is the test. Okay, when it all is boiled down to it, the issue is the blacks and the Latinos, especially the blacks, are getting low scores on average on the tests. And all of this smoke, all of this stuff they've thrown up in the air is a cover for the terrifying possibility that we might not be that smart on average. I assume the McWhorter that I know and love thinks we actually are on average, at least in our basic inherent capacities as smart, but he doesn't want us to be exempted. From having to certify that we actually have command over the material by doing the tests. Okay, so this dodge that people are willing to engage in about getting rid of the tests, where they really are living in bad faith they're they're not they're not actually facing the existential challenge. They're they're not they're not taking life seriously in a way. I'm putting words in your mouth now, but this is what I hear. And you're not you're just not going to stand for it. And uh, what I want to ask you is. How do you know it's not true that we're not as smart if we're not doing that well on the test?
0: Yeah, that's I a mean, legitimate yeah, I, that's a, a, question. Yeah. That's a legitimate question. And we're going to get in trouble for even discussing it. But anybody who thinks we can't discuss it as being religious and not logical. Yeah, how do how do I know? And you know what? I don't right. know. However, I sense it very powerfully from my experience with people of all colors over the past 57 years And I don't think that we've been given a chance to show what we can do. And, you know, one thing that makes it rather clear to me is, as we've discussed, kids of African and Caribbean ancestry have much less of a problem with this sort of thing than black American kids. I don't know of data that show that a Nigerian immigrant's kid does better on those sorts of tests, but I know anecdotally that it is certainly true that, you know, these things like the SAT don't throw that kid as easily as they throw a native-born black American kid. And frankly, it's the same genes, or if anything, here in America, there's more mixture with white people. And so for me, that is one piece of evidence that it's cultural. And, you know, this is this is very anecdote, but I'm going to use it because I was thinking it as I saw it. On my way... Um, I'm not going to, yeah, I can, on my way back from Antwerp, on the back from Brussels, I had occasion to be near, um, a guy and he was, you could tell from, you know, little things he would say to the flight attendant, you know, tea or coffee or something like that. He's a black American man. He wasn't, he wasn't African. He wasn't Caribbean. He's from Cleveland or something. And he's on the plane. It was a seven and a half hour flight. I happened to notice that this guy had no reading material of any kind, never picked any up. He didn't have a he didn't have a Kindle or anything like that. He didn't read the whole time. He didn't watch a movie. He didn't watch any TV. At one point he picked up the little thing that shows pictures of what you're supposed to do if the plane crashes, as if anybody would be alive down there to do it. But he takes a look at that. And then he takes a look at the magazine, but he never really reads it. That guy just sat there the whole time, often just looking off into space. And he wasn't that sleepy. He wasn't sleeping most of the time. And you know what what – now, there could have been any number of things going on. But I remember looking at him and thinking, he's not interested in anything whatsoever. He doesn't have any interest. He's a human being without any interest. And it got me thinking, you know, I wonder – I wonder if he grew up in a home where he was never pointed towards anything in the natural give and take of things. What's interesting? What do you look at? What do you pay attention to? In his upbringing, clearly nothing much. Now, that may not have been a black story. It may have just been him. But I remember thinking the difference here – I'm very close to done. The difference here is that you imagine South Asian kids growing up where even if their parents aren't intellectuals, there's a sense just from intonation. You better do well on that test. You have to worry about that test. I don't think that that guy's parents spoke that way. They didn't say don't pay attention to the test, but they weren't telling him to be interested in anything. Now, I'm I'm on thin ice here because I don't know anything about this person. But it got me thinking about how people are raised. What interests you?
1: That's culture.
0: That's not his brain or his IQ. You know,
1: I admire your courage and your candor because, you know, you are kind of out there on a limb. You're talking about culture and people get mad at you and you and it's anecdotal mm-hmm. you're telling a story about a particular person you don't have systematic data so they'll yeah, say you don't one know one guy i don't about. even know yeah although it, it has the power of the novelist anecdote in the sense that you know the vivid the concrete illustration captures something that we all know from our common sense lived experience as it where it's true about it's true about people and i expect the, the generalization that you're making uh, across racial ethnic lines is broadly true. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's hard to deny that. Uh, But I I want to step back a little bit because I, I I want to distinguish between this argument, the causal argument, we have differences in performance on the test. What are the rudimentary bases of these? Is it, you know, some kind of genetic thing going on? Is it a cultural thing going on? The, The causal argument, and we could argue about that all day. But there's a difference between that and the kind of the philosophical kind of existential. I keep wanting to use that word again because I'm thinking about the existentialist. You know, I'm thinking about the idea of, you know, living up to the uh, possibilities of your freedom, you know, about about being honest with yourself about life and the idea that you don't know for sure. About the inferiority question, uh, about the question, okay, they're doing less well on the test. How do you know it's because they're not just on average less intelligent? You don't believe it. I don't believe it. You don't want to believe it, but you don't know. And the 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 temptation, the the temptation, to run from the inescapable necessity of demonstrating your competence, both to others and to yourself by embracing this narrative of historical victimization and this this kind of you think you get an exemption you know this this kind of uh uh i'm going to trump your performance card with my moral claim my, my my claim of you know anti-racism in this case uh the equity move that you are that you're critiquing is is in a way a kind of try to play that card that card that The historical mistreatment of my people therefore entitles me to be exempt from, you know, your enforcing of a certain standard of judgment. Um, And and I I think there's no way around that dilemma, the, the dilemma of having to demonstrate your competency. I mean, if I were to say on a banner or a bumper sticker, black people have something to prove. That we're not more criminal that we don't neglect our children, that we're just as smart as anybody else. We have the burden of dispelling the suppositions about us that some people are inclined to uh, arrive at based upon what they see in the world. And we don't, that's respectability politics. They have a name for it. I mean, the idea that you would even take that up. so I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things that terrifies me about getting rid of the test is, it, it like, it concedes. It, 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 it calls the whole thing off when we haven't actually done the job yet. Yeah,
0: that's exactly
1: and it. And that's not equality, man. That is so far from equal dignity, from a sense of equal standing, from being able to look people in the eye and 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 feel confident within yourself that you're their peers. That's horrible.
0: It is. And, you know, we need to respond to a certain kind of person who hears this. And, you know, they're, they're this, you imagine a black and white picture. They've got their arms crossed and they're looking down at us. You're criticizing oh, yeah. the culture. No, folks. You have to be more nuanced than that. What Glenn and I are doing is not saying Black people are no good. That's not, that's not it. If I say that a Black family, and I'm being specific, a Black American family is less likely to make it seem like it is absolutely the measure of the human that you try your best on that test, and we really want you to do well on it. If that is less present, in a Black American household than in, for example, an immigrant South Asian household. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with Black people. I'm not pointing a finger and frowning. And there are all sorts of reasons why it might be. It's partly a matter of class. It's partly a matter of what Black America inherited from the countercultural mood of the 1960s, which was begun by white people. It's all sorts of things that I've honestly written about, partly in The Times and then in my two books, Losing the Race and Winning the Race. It's not about blaming and anger. It's just saying that the reason is not racism. But I will say this. There is a problem with one corner of Black culture where I would have to have a judgment, and that is much academic and journalistic Black culture. Where? I don't think that people in that world understand how unique it is that they have this watch cry that Somebody says that we're not good at something, and your response is, why should we have to prove it, rather than proving it? That notion that it's a valid answer to say, why should we have to prove it? You must be a racist. And to really think that that's a mic drop, that's weird, I'll bet it's relatively unprecedented in human history, that's a black thing. But not just a black thing, it's a specific thing. It's an educated, enlightened, post-1966 black thing. And yeah, I've got some judgments on that, just like you guys have judgments on me. I think you need to stop that. If you can't prove it, then you have no right to resent people for supposing that you can't do it. And the fact that we were brought here as slaves doesn't change that, nor does Jim Crow, nor does redlining. None of those things change that basic fact. I'm sorry. Except, you know, I'm not sorry. That is something that our educated class needs to face up to. Glenn, I agree with you completely.
1: Swapping out bedding to suit the weather is a giant hassle. Just one more reason why I love Cozy Earth bedding it keeps me cozy and comfy year round. Cozy Earth was founded to transform lives by offering the softest, most luxurious, and responsibly sourced bedding in the world. Cozy Earth bedding is made using only the finest premium viscose from highly sustainable bamboo. No wonder top designers choose Cozy Earth. Their bedding is naturally temperature regulating, so you'll sleep comfy all year round. I sure do. Cozy Earth is also the brand that made Oprah's favorite things five years in a row. Now that speaks volumes. Whether it's their luxury sheets, loungewear, pajamas, or new bath collection, you'll love shopping at Cozy Earth. And now you can order their bedding in six wonderful colors. Plus, Cozy Earth Bedding comes in a beautiful, reusable canvas bag. Save 35% now on Cozy Earth. Hurry. This New Year's offer ends soon. Go to CozyEarth.com slash Glenn and be sure to enter Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to save 35 percent that's cozyearth.com glenn i'm trying to think now on the top of my head about what the genesis of this might be and you know what i'm thinking about i'm thinking about e franklin Frazier's book black bourgeoisie this is i don't know what maybe 1953 or something like that it was published initially in french you couldn't get Maybe it's a little early. It couldn't get published in English initially. It was published originally in Paris. Uh, And it's this, uh, this is a great sociologist, uh, E. Franklin Frazier. And the uh, thing that I remember most vividly from the book that he's inveighing against is phony, pompous, pretend status manufactured by the black elites. As a kind of parallel to the real status, which was reflected in the structures of the larger society. <clears throat> and, Glenn, and they had to again sphere. because you broke
0: up. Well, Glenn, say it again yeah, because I'm, you I'm broke up. Sure I'll I be okay, get
1: but I'll say it again. Okay. What I said was I was trying to recall the argument of uh, Frazier's book and his, the contempt, the thinly veiled contempt that he has for the phony, status seeking kind of uh, faux grandeur. Uh, which is not real achievement, but it's a kind of mimicking of the white world's real achievement with these parallel Negro, uh, you know, elite uh, organizations and and activities, from the sororities and the fraternities, the way that the historically black colleges are run, the 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 class the of cotillions, yeah, the cotillions and the in the and the secret societies and the and the and the, and, and the uh a kind of it being a mirror image of real status that was built on actual wealth and control over the apparatus of the society and it was it you know you're black and so you had your separate black sphere in which you could kind of create these uh, status distinctions (coughs) uh, uh, among black people um and uh the fact that it would often be a uh uh dodge over actual uh, competition with your with your uh, uh peers who were not black uh but is that a a period piece, or you think that 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 sentiment? You say the class of intellectuals and and journalists and writers who are black and who would exempt themselves from the necessity of demonstrating competency simply by playing this card. You think that's still a contemporary
0: uh, issue? Um, I think that what Fraser was writing about was. Um a different world in many ways. So for example, I'm not sure how many people are having cotillions, so to speak. And that, that tone was a lot of what he was writing about. He was writing about a certain kind of person in a still segregated America where a certain sliver of black people felt value in things like learning Greek and having cotillions and all these formal clubs. The idea being to show, yes, but the things what they were doing was they thought they were showing, yes, we're as good as all of the rest of you. But you could say that all of it was kind of a hollow show. The new people doing this, though, I think it's not so much that they're saying that they shouldn't have to show their competence. It's that they're saying it on behalf of other black people, which I think that black bourgeoisie then often were less concerned with. They're saying that black people in general should be able to be mediocre, that that's part of people being allowed to be human, That we sh- or that we sh- sh- shouldn't have to prove it unless we feel like it. It is racist to tell us that we're not good at something because that's insulting. And yeah, that's rather simplistic thinking. And then with them themselves, I think um, they wouldn't say that they shouldn't have to prove anything, but because most of them, is this safe to say? Yeah, yeah. Most of them, even today, tend to limit themselves to only writing about race issues. And so they don't feel themselves as in competition with white writers because they're writing about different things. They're interviewing different people. And I've heard... Pretty recently, that at, at, one, at one media organ that I will not name, that the, the editor, and, and it's not the New York Times, the editor has had trouble getting black writers to write about something other than race. He's asked them to, and they say, No, what I want to do is, is this. And there's a value to it, but if you ask me, it's a little 1970 as if nobody else would write about these things if black people didn't. That's not as true as it used to be. But it does mean that you probably don't feel like you're in competition with white journalists. You feel like you're in competition with other black ones, but that's a very different feeling. But no, I take your point. I definitely, I take your point.
1: Well, what I'm thinking now is that, because, let's see, we had the Don Baton, the music conductor, on the show Incognito.
0: So that's a pseudonym. When very quickly. I want to reinforce because of a certain Twitter thread that I noticed, or more than a few. I am not Don Baton. That was not me. It was okay. another person. Continue Clem. Yeah, that was another
1: person incognito on the show. We had Jamie Be- Beeman. Isn't he your friend, the actor?
0: Mm-hmm. And now Jamie's um, doing a sub stack, folks. He's really he's really going for it. Yep. Um, we had Vincent Lloyd
1: recently, the um uh, African-American scholar at, uh, God, where is he? Um, in Dartmouth? Pennsylvania? No. Or is it? No, the this thing was the at strength. Dartmouth. Oh, God, where, <laughs> where is he?
0: Villanova. Villanova. Villanova, right. Villanova, as they used to call it. Right, yeah.
1: And next week, I'm going to interview, unfortunately, we couldn't do it this week with you, John. Um, a couple of students from the Stanford Law School are going to be talking about stuff that's going on out there. <clears throat> on free speech things. But anyway, I mentioned all of these. There's a thread that connects them, which is young, pre-professional and early professional African-American writers, intellectuals, scholars, uh, musicians, artists, You you find this in the museum curator world as well, are up in arms driven by identity considerations to challenge standards, you know, what makes for a beautiful symphony that's worth performing today? Uh, how does an actor do her craft even when she has to portray characters whose views she does not herself personally embody? And if that makes you feel comfortable, how do we talk about it? You know, um, the the uh, issue of uh, the Telluride seminar that uh, Vincent Lloyd was uh, associated with and how, how you do that stuff, so, But the substantive work of the organization or the institution is to some degree becoming captive to the identity dynamics. I mean, that's one illustration of which is don't tell me I'm not good. Don't tell me I have to measure up to your standard. When, you know, a conductor says, no, not like this, like that. You know, and and you want to bring your non-European lived experience to bear on the deliberation about how to perform the symphony.
0: I'm sure it's Uh, happened. Yeah,
1: This kind of thing.
0: I'm sure that's happened. I'm sure it's happening. Yeah, black conducting. I'm sure it's coming. And don't impose your standard on me. You know, why can't we do it in our own way? Yeah, Um, that's going to be interesting, actually.
1: We haven't really given a lot of attention to this dimension of the problem that standards are relative. Uh, I mean, what do you say, for example, to somebody who says, I need to have a black... Uh, sufficient representation in the uh, the arc- orchestra in order to draw people. And I need to make the music that we play somehow more reflect the diversity of the potential audience in order to draw people into the seats in the theater. And your insistence on a kind of rigid interpretation of the European canon, as it's always been done, because you've defined that to be excellence, is really uh, uh, asinine. It's kind of Rigid, it, it 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 clings to something, when in fact it should be organic and it should be open to to the ebb and the flow of the of the changing currents of the milieu within which it's embedded.
0: Mm-hmm. No, classical music, same <clears throat> thing. Now, of course, there are you know gray zones, but classical music is a majestic thing, majestic for many reasons. There are black people who've written it majestically. Those people should be played more than they have been in the past and not just Florence Price. That is certainly the case. But the idea that if there are only so many black bassoon and oboe players, that if there are only so many black people in the audience for classical music, if it's below 13 percent, then there's some sort of tragedy and it means that black people are not welcome, that the symphony orchestra isn't welcome to black people. It may feel good to say that. You know, it can feel good in many ways, depending on who you are, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. For one thing, there's nothing wrong with black people being underrepresented in classical music. I mean, what, how does it hurt black America if, you know, we only get so much viola and we only get so much Mahler? Why do we, why do we have to think about it that way at all? And really, if bringing more black people in means that you start doing music that involves charismatic and repetitious rhythm and music like that is majestic in its own ways too but if the idea is that to bring black people in you have to start doing some pieces that jam as in the same rhythm over and over again with lots of improvisation etc no because that's not what classical music is and frankly it's almost condescending to put those two forms together and call them the same thing just because black people might like one more than the other. And the thing is, that music that is, you know, making your head bop, et cetera, black people, you know, we all have plenty of ways of accessing that music. We don't need to go to the symphony hall to hear it and frankly, probably shouldn't. And, you know, uh, you might want to say bring in African drumming you know, like the most complex form of this rhythm-based kind of music. And, you know, you might, but that's not classical music. Why? What's the point? And unless you're going to have all the drumming, suppose the typical black couple doesn't want to go in and listen to 20 minutes of the drumming in all of its complexity, but then the rest of it is Mahler and something by Brahms, and maybe they're not particularly interested in that, and if they're not, who cares? People are just trying to have something to... Be upset about, and you know. But, and then, you, go ahead.
1: Aren't you playing fast and loose with what's a really hard problem, which is the construction and evolution of a canon? You, you keep just saying it's classical music. It's classical music, <clears throat> as if that was somehow not itself already a historically produced aggregation. That uh, I mean, I'm not against it or for it in saying this. I'm just saying it's it's within the realm of human. Manipulation it didn't just fall from the sky, and by invoking it in that way it's like you inure yourself against the urgings of those who want to continue to innovate in some sense so i i mean i I, I understand the impulse, and I'm not against anything or for anything here I'm just saying it looks like it's a hard problem to me uh, to know when you would allow you know that kind of thing to come in and and color and alter you know, the the thing that you cherish, the thing that you call majestic.
0: Yeah. Um, and I should clarify, because I just did a Times piece where I said that we do need to re- reevaluate in some ways what we consider to be, for example, higher or lower, what is classical, et cetera, as in much American musical theater, I think is artistically cut from the same cloth as opera. And I think that the idea that Puccini is classical music, but most happy fella and showboat and Titanic are not classical music. I don't think it makes any sense. And I think that the main reason we think of opera somehow higher is because it tends to be in other languages. And so we can't understand what the people are saying. If it were sung in English, I think it would be much clearer that Madam Butterfly is not somehow (laughs) higher art than showboat. It's just that it's in Italian. So yes. And we do need to make sure that we're not being too fussy about what classical music is, because things do have to change. But it comes down to what I always say. Whatever we let in should not be easier. The idea should not be to make it less of a challenge to appreciate, to make it less artistically rich. And what's artistically rich? What I mean is if the music, unless it's a particularly elaborate form of it, if it's based on the same thing over and over and over again, where your joy in it is the charismatic feel that it gives you to move your body to it. If the music is jamming, that's not the same, nor is it the same if you're doing something that would make more sense at a Pops concert. Now, a Pops concert might have some really good music, but if you're doing something like um, (laughs) the Overture to Mouse, except set to a disco beat, or if you're doing John Philip Sousa marches in st- which are, you know, so easy. You know, any child would love John Philip Sousa marches. That's different from wrapping your head around, you know, maybe just part of Tristan and Isolde or trying to get what's good about a Brahms symphony that you're not going to immediately whistle. I don't want to see it dumbed down just so that brown people will come in. If classical music is so white, I honestly believe, so what? We have plenty of access to our own music in other places. I don't get the concern.
1: Yeah, I, I like, I like the way you put all of that. And, you know, I'm thinking about science, you know, about mathematics uh, right now. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, the hard stuff, the complexity, the brilliance that when you see an absolutely intricate and deeply reasoned and profound elaboration of, of human intellect as, you know, in the, in the various constructs and imagined, you know, developments that then have their own, uh, their their own language their their own way of articulating the insights and you know these things are not self evident they they're layers and depths of of uh, of reflection and you know human imagination when I you know I I agree there's something there it's very hard to put your hand on what it is but you know uh, pop science and science are not the same thing
0: but, no wait, know, there are there are not, not even close their, their rankings and their classifications, and some people are going to say, oh, we got over that lowbrow, middlebrow, highbrow stuff decades ago. But no, a lot of it was thrown out rather deliberately because people didn't want to hurt black people's feelings once again. And there's plenty of high art that's come from us. Our feelings, you know, we don't need to be preserved in that. Our feelings do not, to be, do not need to – you remember when I used to speak English? Our feelings do not need <laughs> to be <laughs> catered to to that extent. But yes, of course, there is highbrow, middlebrow, and lowbrow. I find those classifications very easy, and it has nothing to do with white and black. But everything is not the same. A fifth of Beethoven. Remember? Remember Beethoven's fifth set to a disco beat. Yeah, I remember the 70s? That pop version of that. Yeah, yeah. I remember you know, that being played in the street. It's damn catchy. <laughs> it's not as good as the real thing. It's not that everything is music. Things can be ranked. A fifth of Beethoven is like a nice piece of candy. The symphony is, you know, beef bourguignon. And so there's there's no harm in in saying those things. And I just worry that in the music world it's gonna start being considered wrong. So yeah, I I remember I remember talking to Michael. There was a guy Michael Morgan was a black conductor. Um, he worked out in Oakland. Unfortunately, he passed away youngish rather recently, but he was doing great work and he and I we, we met a few times back when I was in California. And he had a sense that to bring black people into the classical music world, to bring black audiences in, you had to change your sense of what classical music was. And what he meant was, you know, bringing in jammy or kinds of music. And he was brilliant. He was brilliant at what he did. But at the time I never said anything. I didn't, I didn't express my discomfort with that. And I would have liked to have talked about it more with him now. I wonder whether he had come to change his mind on that or whether he thought so, maybe he could have taught me something, but it's an issue. Yeah. What kind of music do you play to bring black people in? I was just going to observe, I think there's a
1: theme here about, you know, the visceral, you know, the thing that comes up from the loin, you know, the thing that is when you, you know, you're, it's a brainstem thing, you know, you're not thinking about it. And the, and the thing that's up in the frontal lobe, the thing that's, you know, that's highly intellectual and, and uh, whatnot. And I, 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 that, that theme has to be everywhere, doesn't it? I mean, it's gotta be, for example, in the church, (laughs) where where people get religion and they allow the feelings of the spirit to possess them, which many religious sophisticated people would take as a kind of lower level or infantile spirituality. It's, it's, you know, I mean, I can move you with a hymn or with a preacher who gets up in the pulpit and shouts and theatrics, but have you actually thought deeply about the dilemmas and the impossibilities of, you know, the kind of thing that an Aquinas or, uh, somebody uh, <laughs> or the guy Augustine and city of God or whatever would be, you know, grappling with the, the meaning of life at some more reflective or deeper level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just one example. You'd, you're going to see it in music. You're, you're going to see it in a, in a lot
0: of things. I mean, there's room for both as far as I'm yeah. concerned in, in this thing called life. It's just that, do you put them in the same places? That's all, you know, Episcopalianism and ba- and baptism, you know, they're, they're but different. But I think you
1: object. Do I? Do I get this not right, John? That you object to this coloration of the African essence as somehow being, you know, visceral and not cerebral, as, as somehow being, you know, you say we dance. You know, we dance. We, we you know, we're going to party. We, you know, our our thing, our trope is is rhythm, uh, mm-hmm. not not the hard nosed discipline of the kind of dedicated kind of you know mastery of the canon of the craft
0: something like that but oh um, yeah i mean yeah the our thing is rhythm as opposed to mastering not going with the rhythm which is what it is you know the the rhythm is the easier thing the rhythm is what comes naturally but if you kind of resist the temptation of the rhythm then you start inventing things like watches and the like what we're being saddled with is that which is easiest and if anybody thinks i don't know how elaborate jazz is they need not think it and you know what else if anybody thinks that the reason i distrust rhythm is because i can't dance i would surprise you i don't dance as badly as you probably think i don't dance the way you know i would like to you're right you can you can tell but not as badly as a lot of you probably think I can That's move. It's not that. <laughs> it's just that rhythm has its place. It can be even a large place. But for us to be associated only with the visceral and the the immediate, it's a slur. It's completely a slur, no matter how thrilling a certain kind of white person finds black black intuitiveness and and what was it called? We are um not indigenous. We are authentic. That authenticity is moving to the beat. Well, that that's cute, but there's a lot more to being human than that.
1: Okay, John, I think we put in our time here. It's an hour of conversation. <laughs> I suggest we end on that note. I, I like it. I like it a lot. Let me remind people that if you want to submit a question for John and I to entertain in our uh, monthly Q&A, you need to become a paying subscriber to The Glenn Show. That's glennlowery.substack.com. We welcome you. But uh, thanks a lot, John. Appreciate your time. Very interesting conversation.
0: I've been prickly today. Sorry.
1: (laughs) No, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, Take care.